good and evil has always intrigued and fascinated us. Each one of us has a beautiful, angelic, noble side to our character and personality. We also have an ugly, a darker, and more selfish side. Can these two be separated? Or is everything we do a combination of both? What would we look like if they were separate? And do they complement each other, or do they defy each other? This is the topic we will be discussing, the Kabbalah of Jekyll and Hyde. This is Simon Jacobson, the Meaningful Life Center, www.meaningfullife.com. This topic is the Kabbalah of Jekyll and Hyde. This program is dedicated in memory of Melville Edelstein, dedicated by Guillaume Levy Lambert. One of the most fundamental issues that all of us deal with and struggle with is the good and evil side of our natures. Each one of us clearly has a very beautiful side where we act with nobility, with kindness, with gentleness, with empathy, care, and really demonstrate and celebrate what a human being is capable of, the angel within but we all know that we have also another side. At times, we can behave very selfishly, very narcissistically, thinking only about me. We can hurt another. We can be insensitive. And sometimes worse, corrupt. And yes, express ourselves in what we would call a more evil fashion. Which one are we? Are you a good person that has, at times, evil inclinations? Or are we bad people, and at times we have good inclinations? Or is it 50-50? Not exactly in the number, but essentially a mix of both. And do these two work with each other, or they battle with each other? Can we do something that's good and noble and virtuous, but also have, perhaps an agenda that's not so selfless, that has another side to it. Is there such a thing as pure good without bad? Is there such a thing as bad without good? These are vital questions because they address what makes us tick, who are we, and how we behave and the choices we make on a moment-to-moment -moment basis, every moment of our lives. So we're talking about the Kabbalah of Jekyll and Hyde. Everybody knows that name. It's the famous 1886 publication of the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson. And he was intrigued by this topic of good and evil within us. And he created these fictional characters with the main story around Dr. Henry Jekyll, who experiments in a laboratory to develop a formula, to develop a potion, where he separates the two sides and he himself experiments with it. And indeed, another personality emerges called Mr. Edward Hyde. I'm not going through the whole story, but it was captivating then and still captivating because it touched exactly on that issue. Who are we? Is there such a thing as a pure angelic human being without a tinge of something from the darker side? 
And other extreme, is there such a criminal or corrupt person on earth that does not have some spark of goodness? And in the things we do, all our actions, how do they interact with each other? So we all talk about the battle between good and evil, the battle between the two voices within us, the selfish voice, the selfless voice. Are you going to be giving or taking? Are you going to be focusing on survival of your own Fulfillment of your own needs, the id, Freudian id, selfish, sexual, pleasure principle, my pleasure, or will you be focused on helping another? We make these choices all the time. And it's often very, I don't want to say random, but definitely you can't have a pattern. Sometimes we're in a very beautiful place and we act accordingly, and sometimes not. That's the average person. But what gets even more, you can say mysterious, is when they work together. What would we be like if we were just expressing, if we were just purely good? Does that darker side within us, our shadow, add anything? It should be harnessed. And we'll discuss that, of course. But does it add something? If we were just that pure angel, only beauty, would something be missing? And of course, the other way around. What does the good add that even the so-called darker side, the evil side, need? For those that are Trekkies, there was a Star Trek episode that, based on some say on, the, on, on Stevenson's uh, novel, Stevenson's story, of, a, of the separation of the two, where the good one was focused on the higher good, but had lacked a certain aggression, lacked a certain fortitude, drive. The evil side was very aggressive, but irrational. So it had a lot of fear, a lot of very emotional. And you saw two different characters, and you saw they both need each other. Is that accurate? And how do they work with one another? So, in one of the most popular stories from the Bible itself, the early story of the Garden of Eden and the famous tree of knowledge of good and evil, that's where our journey begins. Our journey begins in that paradise where there's a mysterious tree called the tree of Eitz Hadas Tevera, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. God places Adam and Eve in the garden and says, eat from the tree of life, but do not eat from the tree of good and evil. What is that? What kind of tree is this? The day you eat from it, you will know good and evil and you will die. As it's explained, not die that moment, but you will bring death upon yourself. What is the tree of good and evil? And of course, that intrigued them even more. What is this tree? The serpent comes to them and says, God doesn't want you to be like God. God knows good and evil. If you eat from that tree, you're going to become godlike. Which tempted them even further, and they ultimately did eat from the tree. And history changed forever. There's so much been written on this topic. But let me give you the Kabbalistic, the mystical take on it. What happened here? And before eating from the tree of knowledge, did they know, not know of good and evil? And that's the key word here, the knowledge of good and evil, to know good and evil. It wasn't just understanding good and evil, not just awareness, knowledge. In the Hebrew, the word das is intimate relationship. It's actually the word used for intimacy. It's not just knowing good and evil in an abstract or philosophical sense of the word. It's experiencing it. Of course they knew that there are things to do and not to do. The mere fact that God told them, do not eat from the tree, they were quite aware not eating from it was the commandment. That means there are things to eat from, there are things you shouldn't do. So they understand there were right things to do and wrong things to do. But it was still just a commandment. It was a statement. They didn't experience it. It's like... A child would know that there are good things to do and there are things you shouldn't do. But the child hasn't tasted from the forbidden fruit. 
Once Adam and Eve tasted from it, now they've experienced it. It became part of them. That's what changed. Up till then, it was a philosophical idea. It would be like a beautiful, great person who's never sinned his entire life, if there's such a possibility. But he knows that there's sin. He knows there are good things to do, good deeds, and knows there are wrong deeds. But it's a knowledge, or I'd say an awareness. I don't want to use the word knowledge. As a, from a distance. It's like there are many things that we're aware of. We understand. You can read in a book about things you've never experienced. Even fantasy. There's a whole other story once you experience it. Because once you experience you become a subjective product of your experience. When we say we lose our innocence, we lose something once you taste from it. So the, the idea of knowing good and what's, good and what's right and wrong, or good and evil, by all means, that's part of an intelligent, sober, coherent person to know what path to travel on, what path not to travel on. Where does the problem arise when you decide, I want to experiment with it, I want to experience it? Then you lose your objectivity. You can't just say, oh, this is the right path, this is the wrong path. You've tasted. Now you may want to taste again. Look at in our lives. Many things before we tasted from something forbidden or experienced something, it may have tempted us, but it was not yet part of who we are. So the temptation could still be controlled. Once you let the cat out of the bag, so to speak, once you lose that innocence, once you taste of the forbidden, then it's become part of you, and now you want to do it again. In many ways, that's the root of addiction. It doesn't begin immediately, but you do something again and again, and then you suddenly realize, I can't live without it. Whether it's a psychological addiction, or a physical addiction, or an emotional one, what happened? You knew about it before. You even knew the possibility of becoming addicted. But it was still... And what we'd call in Hebrew, chachma or bina. It was intelligence. It was understanding, comprehension, even profound comprehension. But it wasn't knowledge. You did not become one with it. You didn't taste it. You didn't experience it. Once it's experienced, then it becomes part of you and part of your subjective reality. So you may begin justifying, it's not so bad. Or I'll stop tomorrow. I'm not even getting into what it may be, the behavior or the substance. But now you are no longer a bystander. And that's what happened. Adam and Eve, once they ate from the tree of knowledge, it shaped them. And that's why God said to them, you can no longer live forever. You brought death upon yourself. Death means not that immediately, in time. Because in a way you have betrayed your divine image, your purpose. You're no longer seamlessly connected like an innocent child to the source of life. You've wandered a bit away. You've betrayed yourself. That's why God says to Adam, who's hiding from God after he ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, God says, where are you? Well, God didn't know where Adam was. But he didn't recognize him. It's like you can have sitting near someone and you say, where are you? They spaced out. I don't recognize you. What happened to you? You betrayed yourself and your mission and your calling. This is also why Adam and Eve were completely not conscious of their own nakedness and sexuality before eating from the tree of knowledge. Because sexuality was just another part, a beautiful part of life and of love. And why should there be any self-consciousness? Like a newborn child, a young child is not self-conscious. What's, what's nothing wrong with being sexual, having a sexual dimension to your life. It's part of who you are. But once you become self-conscious, because why? Because now your knowledge is not just of your pure mission and its seamless connection to, what, to your calling. So you become a separate consciousness, a separate entity. You're self-conscious. And if you're self-conscious, you're conscious of your nakedness. And you're conscious of your sexuality, you're conscious of yourself vis-a-vis -vis your divine purpose. Like I always like to put it in very simple terms. You ask somebody, tell me, who are you? And very often people give you their business card. And I say, but that's what you do, that's not who you are. And some will respond, well, what can I tell you? What I do has become who I am. Instead of your inner identity, 
defining what you do, the tool chest should follow the purpose, what you're using these tools for. What's happening here is what you do, your tool chest is telling the arm and your hand and your brain and your mind and your heart what to do. The soul should be directing the body, not the body, the soul. But that's what happens when we become a product, if not a victim, of circumstances. So there's now a dichotomy. A dichotomy that makes you self-conscious, which for some can also translate into guilt, even though guilt is not a healthy sensation or feeling, because what does guilt do? Just demoralizes you. But if it's a sense of remorse or a sense of regret or a sense of sadness because you feel this dichotomy, then it's healthy because it's motivating you. But what's happened now is after the eating of the tree of knowledge good and of, of the knowledge of good and evil, it's now not just an abstract idea. Good and evil have become part of you. And what the Kabbalists, the mystics say, it's now become mixed together to the point you sometimes can't even distinguish. There's the idea, for example, people are altruistic, but they have a selfish interest in mind. They want to be honored. They want to be respected. They want a tax credit. There are many reasons. Is that bad, per se? So from a perspective, you could answer, no, it's actually a good motivation. So you're doing it for all ulterior motives. But the bottom line is you're doing something good. Many people use ulterior motives and they don't do good for anyone else. But are there times where your selfish interest, your self-interest can actually taint or contaminate or toxify that good deed? In some instances, we can see a scenario like that. It can become, become in the beginning it may be with good intentions and then suddenly becomes somewhat of Intentions that are dubious intentions, and to the point it could be very malevolent, very, uh, very ne negative intentions. To the point that you could end up hurting other people. So it's not a simple matter when we talk about this mix of the two. But the way I described it now, based on this, okay, it sounds like that's part of reality. There's no good without evil, there's no evil without good, which is actually an expression used by Hasidic masters. Ain tev ra, ain ra There's no good without some element of the negative, the opposite of good, and there's no bad without some good in it. And the problem is because it's snowballed and we don't have that clarity, sometimes someone can offer you something that sounds very appealing, very uh, uplifting and beautiful, and you embrace it, and then later you find out that their intentions were quite very different from what you bought into. They threw you a sweet candy or they sweetened up the deal and then you find out that now you're stuck in a situation you don't even want to be in, which you were never told about. That So people can't be fooled, we can't be manipulated. Is the opposite true as well? That you can be... Involved in something negative and then something good comes out of it? Absolutely. I remember there was a film called The Amazing Dr. Clitterhouse. It was an experiment. Edward G. Robinson was the main actor. And as a doctor, he wanted to study criminals. So he became part of a group of criminals. His intention was just to study them. And he would go with them on crimes, for instance, and the bank heists, you name it. But his, and he was a brilliant man, so he became one of the ringleaders, if not the ringleader. But one condition, he took their heartbeat and their pulses and their breath breathing. He wanted to see what criminals go through while they're in the middle of the act. Then he could do a study on it. His intention was the study, but he became part of that criminal. They were finally busted and arrested, and he was put on trial. It's a funny ending. I'll be a spoiler here. And, of course, the arguments are made. And in his defense, they say, he's never intended to do this. He's a doctor who looked to do something good. No one could believe that's what he ended up stooping to. And he was acquitted, you know why? For insanity. Because only an insane person would do that. I mean, it just 
an example. It's not necessarily a real story, but you get the idea. So where it gets complicated is when, how do you clarify? When you're unable to see the good and evil are all mixed together. Let's take it back to one of my favorite topics is children. Because children are the purest version of ourselves. When did children, children learn to become selfish or to do something that we would categorize as wrong or lie or even something evil, hurting someone, something corrupt? Because if you think about it, if you didn't have any role models that taught a child to do something like that, every child is like Adam and Eve pre-tree of knowledge. Pure, innocent, not self-conscious. Everything is very seamless. So it's very hard to pinpoint exactly when is the first time we, each one of us as a child, lied. When is the first time we did something duplicitous? Which is usually, as I said, a result of something we saw. It didn't just come. The point I want to make is not to point exactly when that happened, that we do go through a transition in our lives, and all of us have a microcosm in our personal lives, a pre-eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil and a post you can call that the loss of innocence. And it may take stages. Now the question, of course, is do children not born with another inclination? The answer is absolutely yes. So to continue on the theme which began in our journey in paradise, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, let us move now to the concept that the Kabbalists and the mystics, and especially the Hasidic masters, codified so powerfully in the book called Tanya, talk about the two souls within us, the two voices, one called the divine soul and one called the animal soul. One resides in the reflective mind, that's the divine voice, and one resides in the emotional and subjective and impulsive heart. So a very practical level. Something comes your way, something tempts you, something seduces you. If you don't think about it, you may just feed into it. And that is essentially your impulsive side following your impulse. If you allow your reflective mind to intervene, you may say, one second, before I entertain this, before I act, let me think about it. You may determine this is not necessarily healthy. I'm not going to do this particular act. I'm not going to betray someone. I'm not going to violate. I'm not going to hurt. There you have the classic battle between the two voices. One is the reflective mind, thinking about consequences, long term. Is this right? Is it consistent with my value system? The other, impulsive. Right now, here and now, instant gratification. Go back to the Freudian model of the id, even though it's been debunked and many reject that approach. But I'm just using it because Freud still is the guy to disagree with. The id, the German id, in it, which is me, 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 the pleasure principle, my pleasure, especially of the sexual sort, is the driving engine of a human being. And then there's an ego and a superego superimposed to create rules because we need to coexist. In a way, we're imposing some rational, reflective green lights and red lights just to simply survive and coexist. But cut, to, cut someone to the core, put them, pressure them, torture them, put them in situations that are, that are life-threatening, like hunger, an avalanche, where there's nothing to eat, where they're really pushed to the brink, what happens? Very often they'll turn extremely selfish, survival of the fittest. But we also see people, even in the most horrendous circumstances, that rise to the occasion and will allow themselves to die before they hurt another person. They will not resort to cannibalism or to any other way hurting someone just to keep yourself safe or protected or to survive. So we definitely see another voice. And there's a choice. The choice can, the, 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 why do some people choose to be noble, other people choose to be selfish? Is it purely wiring? Not necessarily. It could also be upbringing. 
what we've seen around us, our standards, what we've learned. But regardless of the analysis, there is a choice. And we see it all the time. In the same circumstances, one person turns into a monster, the other person turns into an angel. Is it, pure, is it purely angelic? Look, there are those, especially the more radical evolutionary biologists, Richard Dawkins, selfish gene, will make the argument that even altruism and nobility is also part of selfishness because it makes you a healthier person to be giving. It's good for you. I don't buy into that personally because it dismisses, therefore, all acts and sacrifices of those who've died for another, who paid a price for love, for care. But this is not the point of this discussion, so I'm not going to go there. Just, make, just for the thoroughness of pointing it out. And that there is a really good side within us. And, however, it's mixed together. Because these two souls that I'm talking about reside right near each other. I don't mean physically near. They're intertwined. Because there are many things we do that satisfies both. For example, the divine soul. Or sometimes the way it manifests on the emotional realm is called the Yetzir Tov, the good inclination. It can convince the animal soul and the emotional dimension of that, the evil inclination, to go along. Like For example, let's say you're studying an idea, a very spiritual idea. It can be very enjoyable for the other side of you, the darker side in you. It's enjoyable. Yes, maybe for selfish reasons I enjoy this idea, but so what? So the divine side, the good side, can actually also persuade and convince the other side to work along with it, and vice versa. At times, our selfish needs, our corrupt side, the darker side, can convince us and use your mind to justify, which we see happen all the time. People justify their behavior, even though it may be horrendous behavior. They find justification, they minimize, they deny. So they both speak to each other. They're not just two separate voices they speak to each other. And very often it's impossible to distinguish. Where is it coming from? So there's a Jekyll and Hyde within each one of us. We'll call it the divine soul and the animal soul. The better side and the uglier side. And God knows each of us, we don't have to spell it out, is quite aware and hopefully aware of some things, the, the darker, uglier side that we'd like not to talk about. But it's there. And sometimes not far from the surface. But there's also the other, the beautiful side. So you have to ask yourself, where do you stand right now? How do you see yourself? Many people unfortunately say, I think I'm more a selfish human being. Nobody's going to get up and say I'm an evil person through and through. I've rarely seen someone ever say something like that. Even psychopaths, sociopaths, have a very charming side to them. It's part of their, uh, their uh, manipulation. It's part of the way they groom and part of, part of their evil. But most honest people will say, yes, I have an ugly side to me. There are times I get angry. I do something impulsively, which I regret afterwards. But if I were to ask you overall, do you see yourself as a good person with setbacks and temptations or do you see yourself more of a selfish person and at times some goodness comes out of you answer that question doesn't mean that necessarily you're answering accurately there's an interesting statement in the talmud that says no person can 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 declare that they're a tzaddik a righteous person and no person can can declare themselves as an evil person because we're subjective I've seen people who call themselves not such good people. They're very good people. They're subjective, whatever reason. Maybe they have a lack of self-confidence. Maybe they were criticized. Maybe they're very hard on themselves. And they don't focus enough on the good side, only on the other side. And I've seen the opposite. People who consider themselves or they portray and project themselves as, as these righteous people. And you cut a little beneath the surface. They're far from that. And I'm not here to pass judgment. That's not the discussion at all. This is more about understanding ourselves. Can we really even be judges? I would say we can't. Yes, 
I would like to hear from somebody, you know, speaking to people, counseling people. You want to hear what's your self-perception because you want to ultimately help someone help themselves. So you want to know what they're aware of. And if their self-perception is so distorted, you may need to help them see a little clearly. Some people have very good self-perception, even though their conclusion may be subjective, but they have a sense. So this is really case by case, person by person. Once you answer that question, I will tell you that there's no such thing after the eating of the tree of knowledge of pure 100% absolute good. And the opposite is also true. It's a snowball. It's a connection. And the separation that uh, Stevenson writes about is not something we should be doing or tampering with or attempting because there's a value in their combination. The key is to recognize each voice so you can determine how to proceed. You don't want to be in a confused state and saying, is this going to be a good thing or is it not going to be a good thing? But we don't need to go to extremes to actually separate these two parts. You don't want to lobotomize yourself or someone else, God forbid, and separating these two voices. And this brings us to the most important point of all, how the mystics, the Kabbalists, see the Kabbalah, not just of Jekyll and Hyde, the Kabbalah of evil itself. What exactly is evil? And for that matter, what is good? So we all throw out these words, evil, good. Let me tell you the mystical and Kabbalistic take on it. It's actually documented quite well, if I can say so myself, in my book, Toward a Meaningful Life, the chapter on good and evil. And here's the big dilemma, the big philosophical quandary. If God is all good, omnipresent, and absolutely good, goodness, where did evil come from in the first place? Who created it? Where did it come from? The way the Kabbalistic mystics teach it, explain it, is with a concept I've shared many times, the concept of tzimtzum, concealment. That in order to fulfill the desire that God have, God had, to have what we call a home, a divine home in this world, was necessary to have an independent consciousness of divine consciousness. If we were just puppets and robots living out God's plan, what's the purpose? So there needs to be created an independent consciousness where at our own volition and, and will, we choose. Adam and Eve had the power to choose. They chose wrongly. But if they didn't have to have the power to choose, there's no purpose to it all. They had the two trees to eat from, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and they chose to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So as I mentioned earlier, prior to them acting and experiencing and tasting from the fr forbidden fruit, they were aware of it. They were fully aware this tree was off limits. That was the choice. In order to have such a choice, you have to have some independent consciousness. If they were just divine consciousness, and that's it, they would never have had the choice. So in a sense, you can say potentially, they already had a side to them that was not purely divine, at least not in a revealed way. So what does it originate from? A concealment. The divine concealment of concealing the presence of the divine will so we can have another option. The goal is, using an analogy, a beautiful analogy, of a parent hiding from his or her child with the intention that the child should, to elicit the child's ingenuity, to provoke the child to go find and find innovative and ingenious ways to discover the concealed parent. But what happens if the concealment was so well done? that the child gives up. That's the beginnings of what we would call evil. So evil really is essentially the absence of the consciousness of goodness, allowing you to make a choice. And if you make the wrong choice and you convince yourself it's not concealment, this is reality, that's where the problems begin. So if the child gives up and forgets or is not aware that the whole concealment was not meant to hurt you, was not meant to allow for anything negative. It was only meant for you to overcome and recognize 
that the concealment is only to bring out your deeper strengths, all would be good. That would have been if Adam and Eve realized that. But once you buy into it and you give it credence and credibility, then you're giving the concealment an end in itself. It was only meant to be a means to bring out something deeper in you. And instead now it becomes an end in itself and that begins to define your consciousness which ends up being that you wander away from the purpose of the concealment was to reveal the divine. Instead, it becomes an end in itself, and that's when it begins to take on a shape of something that is antithetical to the divine plan, which what we call is evil. So evil is essentially the absence of that awareness. And once that becomes an end in itself, then things really get out of hand. So the world in which we live, where there's, unfortunately, violence, war, much less than it was in the past, but people can hurt each other. Racism, discrimination, injustice. How is that possible? We're all one. We're all one part of one organism connected to one God. Is because the concealment doesn't allow us to see it. So if we were wise, we'd say the concealment is only testing us, is only meant for us to discover the deeper connection between us. But in fact, what happens is we buy into it and then we act on it. The concealment says, I'm not connected to you, but you are. And then you defy and you betray and you violate the very nature of who you truly are. That's why sin, the Hebrew word for sin is not sin. Just like the word for evil is misunderstood. It means wandering away from your purpose. A mitzvah, a good deed, is connection. A sin is a disconnection. So think of a machine created by a brilliant engineer. And he gives you an operator's manual and says, this is how you use this machine. Do A, B, C, D. The machine will hum along beautifully. Fulfill its purpose. A computer. However, if you do A, B, C, D, the opposite, which you should avoid, you'll destroy. Life is a machine. I don't mean in the literal sense of the word. It's an organism. And there are things you do, let's talk physically, foods you eat, vitamins you ingest, exercises that improve, cultivate, and nurture the human body. And there are things, if you behave that way or you consume the wrong foods, it can destroy your body. In time or even immediately. The same thing is for the spirit, psychologically and emotionally. There are behaviors, including nobility and kindness and generosity and virtue and all those values, that actually make you a healthier, healthier psyche. And there's behavior, selfishness and corruption and, and uh, being a taker, narcissism, and all that, that originates from what? From that concealment that turns you and is unhealthy for you. And we have the choice because of the concealment. So the wrong choice is essentially a result of a concealed state. The key is to remember that. When you remember that, then it's not a question whether there's good and evil. Then you recognize there's no such thing as evil. There is making the wrong choice based on a misunderstanding of the realities on the ground. If we were able to turn the clock back and teach every one of the 7.8 billion people on earth what Adam and Eve had known, they'd still have a choice. But it would be a lot better because at least it's an informed choice and you know what the consequences are. So this mix of what is right and what is wrong is a result of this concealment. Take away the concealment, let the light shine, it becomes very clear. This is the healthy path, this is the unhealthy path. And I prefer those words, healthy and unhealthy, better than good and evil. Because what does good and evil mean? Who determines that? What is healthy for the human being, both body and soul, what is unhealthy is what we're discussing. So yes, we end up doing things that can actually hurt ourselves and we're not even aware of it. And we live in the moment and say, right now I'm happy, what do I care? That's all an outgrowth of a distorted and misunderstood symptom. A distorted and misunderstood concealment. So when you think about the Kabbalah of Jekyll and Hyde, you think about Kabbalah of healthy and unhealthy, and how they come together, and how we often just buy into something or we embrace it because of its instant gratification. Momentary pleasure. 
and we forego and forget the longer-term consequences, which happens all the time. And it's often due to impulsive behavior or addiction. It's all a result. These are all products, symptoms of a much deeper issue, a symptom misunderstood, a concealment that has gone off the tracks based on our perception. But that too is part of our choice. Because once you hear about it, you say, okay, what can I do to counter it? I'll tell you what you can do. Don't buy into it. Next time you see a situation where you have a choice between the Jekyll and Hyde within you, say to yourself, firstly, let me reflect. What did I lose to reflect? And you can tell your impulsive voice, you can tell your Edward Hyde within you and say, look, I am going to reflect. I say, no, we have to act right now. Why act? If it's so healthy for me, we can do it tomorrow. But we all know, anything that tempts us, that seduces us, that distracts us, its power is in the moment. That's its power of manipulating us. You ever hear someone who's a real great emotional manipulator? A, a great, uh, you, know, you get these um, sales pitches. Telemarketing, someone calls you. If you're ready, pick up the phone. And they say, here's an offer you can't refuse. And they really know how to put it on. You say, you know what, let me think about it. No, the offer expires in 30 seconds, in, in a minute, in five minutes. Why is it expiring? Because they know that if you think about it overnight, most likely you're not going to buy it. So you tell your Hyde, listen, let me reflect. Hyde is not going to like that because it, it, it thrives. This negative side thrives on concealment, on subterfuge, on darkness. It's not good under the light, just like maggots and other unwanted creatures. When the light shines, they run away. Some things thrive in the dark. What is dark? Ignorance. That's why it's called a moment of insanity, a moment of ignorance. If you knew that by putting your hand in fire, it would hurt your hand. Who would put their hand in fire? Do you know any normal person? The only reason someone may do it is if they don't know it's fire or they don't know the consequences of what fire does. The same thing is with other behaviors. It's a moment of darkness. But that darkness was necessary for the choice. Adam and Eve had that moment. Had they understood this choice was in order to listen from them that wisdom, from intelligence, their deeper resources, this is meant to be a tree to not taste from. You can study it, you can be aware, but not knowledge. Don't become intimate with it. And the same as we have that same choice. So the first thing is clarity. Clarity. Now let's be honest. We know it's easier said than done. Many of us may say, you know what, I'll deliberate on it. I'll reflect. I'll allow my divine, the divine soul resting in my mind to reflect. And we still may give in. Or we may never allow it to reflect because the temptation is just too strong. So I'm not suggesting it's easy. But I am suggesting there is a force at work that you have the ability of that self-control, of allowing your mind to control your, your reflective mind to control your impulsive heart. This doesn't mean it goes away, that Mr. Hyde goes away from you. It means it's there and, it is, and, and has a place. Because its role was actually to bring out the best in you. That's why to cut out the Hyde within us and only have the jackal, to cut out the potential for negative behavior and only have the good defeats the purpose. The potential is necessary for you to overcome the challenge and the temptation to bring out greater strengths. A soul in heaven like an angel doesn't have temptation. It's not tempted. So you never will have that deeper strength. It's specifically in a world of concealment that allows for the potential of making the mistake. And when you don't make it, that negative side has actually served you. The mistake of uh, Dr. Jekyll was that he decided, for whatever intention, maybe it was for his own pleasure, what it would be like to actually become Hyde. That was not the goal. The purpose of it is to bring out the best in you and not succumb, not to give it control. The concealment shouldn't be in control. The concealment should bring out the, your greatest strength, your ingenuity, as I said with the child, to figure out how to overcome this concealment. And this is called, in the Kabbalistic and mystical and Hasidic language, transforming the tzimtzum. 
You transform your animal soul. You don't just reject it. You don't just annihilate it. You transform it by recognizing it's con- the concealment is not the objective. It's only a stepping stone for a greater revelation. Resistance brings out the best in us. But don't ever think the resistance is the end result. And even worse, not just the resistance, you become, you become unfortunately a product of, or your identity becomes defined more by your selfishness than by your selflessness. So in a way you can almost say, using light and shadow as an example, that the Jekyll and Hyde within us, the animal, the divine soul and the animal soul, are like light and shadow. There is no shadow without light. But if you look at the shadow on its own, and you don't recognize it's just simply a extension of the light, and you give it its own value, then suddenly the shadows become you, or part of you. Every shadow in our lives, every temptation, every challenge, is really yet another dimension of deeper, healthy goodness within you, within the cosmos, waiting to be unleashed and released. However, it takes on the shape of a concealment. So when you see a person, for instance, and you motivate, let's say, a child and say, if you study well, if you're kind to your friends, if you listen to your parents, we will reward you with a candy, with a toy. So someone would argue, one second, why don't you just train your child to do good because good is the right thing to do? Why do you have to buy them off? Why do you have to give them an incentive as if they're doing it really for the prize? Then they come away with an impression that the prize is the main thing. Okay, I'll do whatever you want me to do as long as I get my prize. The answer is no. Because the prize is actually speaking to that more, let's call it the more selfish side in the person. I don't mean that necessarily in a bad way. The more the voice within us that relates, I relate to the prize. I may not yet relate to that good act. So I'm speaking to that part of you and saying, I'm persuading you on your terms. I'll give you a prize. You know why? Because it's really the right thing to do. But you don't understand it yet. So here's the prize. Here's an analogy from the Baal Shem Tov. I personally love this analogy. It's an excellent analogy for this topic. Briefly, it's one of the analogies, very similar again to child and parent, but in this case it's a king of a great empire. He's aging and ailing, and he has a son who he's grooming to be the next leader, his heir to the throne. One problem. The son grew up in the palace, spoiled. He had everything he wanted. He never earned his way. And his father recognized that and said he's not sensitive enough. So his father comes up with a plan. I will send my son away now to a distant land in my empire where no one will recognize him. He will not grow up with benefits. He will not grow up with any guards and without any caretakers. He's going to have to make it on his own. I'm going to conceal all that from him. And in time, he will learn to live among the common folk, become a more sensitive person, understand their issues, their challenges, their problems from the ground up. And then he will be worthy. He will have earned his right to come back and be a righteous and compassionate and empathetic leader. The father knows full well that's not easy to do because he's taking him away from all the comforts. And he's sending him into a place where nobody's going to recognize him without real protection. And he knows his son at time will assimilate to the ways of the land and will perhaps forget his father and the palace and the kingdom and what the whole purpose of this was in the first place. So the father comes up with an idea. I will send my child, my son, a letter several times a year, a letter to remind him, dear son, I love you. Remember, always remember why you're there. You're there because one day you're going to be a great leader. Don't forget that you were sent on a purpose and a mission to come back and be a truly sensitive leader because now you've earned it. You were ingenious, creative, innovative, and figured out how to live without being given on a platter all the gifts. And that's what happens. The day comes, the sad day, he sends the son away. But as promised, 
he does send those letters. The sun indeed goes off. And of course, in the first days, the first weeks, it's not easy. But then he slowly gets accustomed. And he's now part of the community he's living in this distant land. And yes, he slowly forgets. But then one day a letter arrives from the king. Ah, he suddenly smiles. He remembers. He wants to celebrate. Because he remembers why he was sent here. The problem is all the people in the town don't have a clue who he is. And what is he going to tell them? I'm celebrating because one day I'm going to be your king, your leader. They'll either think he's insane or they will uh, just laugh it off. And he doesn't want to just, or they may even be offended. So he decides, he has an idea now. Talking about being creative. He throws a party. Free drinks, free cocktail, food, everything. And everybody, a free party, of course. They're all participating. This is clearly pre-COVID or post. And they're celebrating because they're getting a great, a great feast and great drinks and great company. And he's celebrating with them. But his mind and heart are with his father, with his purpose, with his calling. Says the Baal Shem Tov, this is an analogy for each one of us. You and I, every man, woman, and child on this earth, is that child. The soul of your life, this, your soul, lived in a divine palace in heaven without the challenges of a physical body and a material life and the selfishness and the narcissism and the corruption and health issues and all the fears and concerns that we have in this world, all the anxieties. But what's the achievement? In a palace, there's no other option. So you're basking in the glory of the divine divine light. You've not earned it. So the king, God, says, I'm going to send your soul to a distant land where they don't know who you are. And your soul is going to now go into a physical body, into a material world, a hostile world at times, a toxic world, a world that's not so simple, where good and evil are not so black and white and clear, a world post-tree of knowledge, tree of knowledge of good and evil. And you're going to have to figure it out. But I will send you reminders. These will be the holidays, the Sabbaths. Many reminders that what? Who you are. And never forget that you're a soul in a body. You're a spiritual being on a physical journey, not a physical being on a spiritual journey. I'm adding that to the analogy. And when the soul receives that letter, it wants to celebrate. But the problem is the body and the physical world, they have another agenda going on. They have other issues. They're not thinking about spiritual destinies and higher purpose. So God says, I'll tell you what you do. Buy great food, throw a party. Let the body, let the animal soul regale and celebrate because it's getting good food and good sleep and rest and enjoying itself and good company. But you, the soul, are celebrating because you're on a journey, you're on a mission. And this explains why holidays and Sabbaths are so connected to food. What's so spiritual about food and meals? Because it's basically convincing the animal soul, the hide within us. Here are things you can do that you enjoy. Hide doesn't yet understand higher ideals necessarily. But through this you begin to train him. And meanwhile the soul, the Jekyll, is celebrating because it's here for a higher purpose. Unfortunately, what has happened, that what often happens is that we celebrate, but we forget the soul's side of it. That's when it really turns what we would call south. We have to always remember that life has both sides to it. There's a side that is about our higher purpose. It's always there. It's beating right inside of you like your heart is beating in your chest. Your soul is beating inside of you. And that's the restlessness, the angst, in a good way, that causes you to look up for transcendence, causes you to seek out purpose, deeper purpose, as opposed to immediate instant gratification. But there's another side. Yes, you are living in a place of concealment. And the soul is concealed within the body and its physical needs, the hide. That's all it cares about is me, me, me. 
we have to find ways to harness that by, I don't want to say buying it off, but definitely convincing, persuading, teaching it through good food, through good drink, obviously through good behaviors, but on terms that the body can understand. That even that side in us, where things are concealed, the concealment can also understand it's good for it. With the goal of transforming it to the point that we all come to recognize, both parts of you, joined together in one harmony, to recognize that the revealed part of your soul and the concealed part of your, the revealed part of your Jekyll and the concealed part of your Hyde really are two dimensions of one reality. A reality that is seeking to discover the deepest truths of our purpose that in this material world, not in the palace in heaven, on earth, with all its challenges, with all its hostility, with all its divisiveness, was all really a diversity driven by a concealment in order for us to be wise enough to see through it, to see through the smoke screens, to see through the curtain, to see what's on the other side under the dashboard, and reintegrate and fuse the two, and bring a world that is post-tree of knowledge of good and evil, connected to a world that was pre-tree of knowledge of good and evil. Not by annihilating the second voice, but by harnessing it and transforming it as the Talmud says, that when we say in the prayers, in the Shema prayer, we say, love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, with all of you. So as an expression by heart, it doesn't say with your heart, as lev in Hebrew is, one, is a heart. It says levavcha with two bases, if familiar with the Hebrew. It says with with both inclinations, with both sides of you. Love with both sides. How could you love with the side that is high? It's antithetical because that's not its root. Its root is concealment. Not, and it's not, it, it, it's not the antithesis of the divine. It's the concealment of the divine. And we have to see through it and transform it. And then the love is all part of all of you. Not just your soul, but also your body, also your physical life. Joins with your spiritual life into one harmonious song and celebration of our purpose in this world. So in practical call to action terms, next moment, every moment, we have choices to make. Even if you're tempted, say to yourself, this temptation is essentially a concealment looking and seeking my deeper strengths. Try that. Will it always work? It may not, but it will begin to work because it's another way of looking at the Jekyll and Hyde in our lives of the two sides, the two voices, and ultimately joining them together, not as it ends in Stevenson's book, with the death of Jekyll and, of course, the death of Hyde with him, but on the contrary, a transformation that is an integration of the two, both forces, one revealed, one concealed, joining together to reveal an even deeper truth that's beyond revelation and beyond concealment. Every moment our act, we have that ability to choose. So it's not just avoiding evil and bad choices, it's harnessing it, recognizing for what it is, and overcoming any of the challenges that we face. In this time period, especially now, with all the upheaval, the unknowns, uncertainties, it's a good time to think about these things because we have more time for introspection, for soul-searching. This has been Simon Jacobson, Meaningful Life Center, Our website, MeaningfulLife.com, is filled with resources of all sorts for people of all backgrounds. Please enjoy, partake, and especially empowering resources for this time in which we are living. I want to thank you all for all the kind words of encouragement and support, and above all, for your financial support. We are now running a Meaningful Lifeline campaign. So you go to MeaningfulLife.com forward slash lifeline, Please partner with us, both for your sake, for my sake, for all our sakes, and helping many people in finding ways to understand the Jekyll and Hyde within us, as well as other aspects of our human nature, to bring out the best in us. So I'm asking you personally, on behalf of all those that benefit from our work, please participate in any way you can in this campaign. Again, MeaningfulLife.com Lifeline. Donate generously. We can dedicate a program in honor or memory of a loved one 
as you see fit. And it is my distinct honor to share with you these ideas. We're here every Wednesday. This is the Wednesday Masterclass, it's called. Every Wednesday, 8.30 p.m. But it's then archived and downloadable as a podcast on the MP3 in any platform and uh, format you wish. Please look at our calendar at MeaningfulLife.com for a full array of scheduled programs literally every day of the week. And uh, I'm sure different things speak for the different people. And this is, again, our honor, myself, my team. Thank you again very much. Everyone, it be a healthy week, a fulfilling week, and one of integration of both sides, of all dimensions within us as one cohesive whole, not fragmented, not compartmentalized, but one fusion. Thank you. This program is brought to you by the Meaningful Life Center. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at MeaningfulLife.com donate.